The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Last year, we spent a fascinating hour exploring whether or not dogs were, in fact, capable of detecting cancer. It's a topic that continues to generate a lot of interest in the scientific community and in the media, uh, in great part because it could lead to a means of diagnosing cancers for which we currently do not have reliable tests. We know dogs have an amazing sense of smell, but can they really detect cancer? Uh, And if, in fact, they can, how can we exploit that ability? I'm, I'm thrilled to Welcome to the show, two incredibly knowledgeable guests, Dr. Donald Bodenner and Dr. Arnie Ferrando, researchers from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, who are trying to answer just that question as it relates to thyroid cancer. Let me tell you about our guests. Dr. Donald Bodenner is director of the Thyroid Center and Chief of um, Endocrine Oncology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He is also an Associate Professor in the Department of Geriatrics. Dr. Bodenner completed an endocrinology fellowship and was a Senior Staff Fellow at the National Institutes of Health. He is uh, a diplomat of the National Board of Medical Examiners and is board certified in both internal medicine and endocrinology. Dr. Bodenner is a member of the Endocrine Society, the American Thyroid Association, and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. He has received multiple awards for outstanding performance in the areas of clinical teaching and clinical research, including the American Federation of Clinical Research Early Career Development Award. He's c- contributed to and written articles for numerous professional publications. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bodenner. Thank you. Dr. Arnie Ferrando is a professor in the Department of Geriatrics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. His academic training consists of a BS in engineering from West Point, an MBA from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, a PhD in nutrition from Florida State University, and a postdoc in protein metabolism and space physiology at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Dr. Ferrando's work is focused on the preservation of skeletal muscle, in particular, the use of pharmacological and nutritional interventions to improve muscle loss. Dr. Ferrando is the principal investigator on the current investigation of canine detection of thyroid cancer. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Ferrando. Yes, ma'am. Very impressive resumes, gentlemen. Um, Before uh, we talk about your study specifically, I think we should just take a step back to better understand the challenges facing 
uh, the medical community working um, in the treatment of thyroid cancer. Uh, Dr. Bodenner, uh, just explain briefly to our listeners um, what is thyroid cancer and what are some of the typical symptoms a person might experience that would lead them to seek medical attention? Well, there are several different forms of thyroid cancer, and this will be important later on in the discussion. The most common is called papillary thyroid carcinoma, and that constitutes about 85% to 90% of all thyroid cancers. The second most common is called follicular thyroid cancer, and that's about 10%. And then you have medullary thyroid cancer, uh, and then lymphoma of the thyroid, and then finally anaplastic thyroid carcinoma. So those comprise all of the different types of thyroid cancer. Uh, Dr. Ferrando later will explain why that's important, that, mm-hmm. that uh, we recognize that there are different forms. The typical symptoms that a person presents with when they come down with thyroid cancer, it, it's the symptoms are actually quite uncommon nowadays. In the past, when, before people would go to the doctor, before we had a better appreciation for thyroid cancer, they would show up with large nodules in their neck, palpable masses. And these masses uh, could chop off the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which uh, innervates the voice box so that they would present with a real raspy voice. And the other thing uh, that sometimes that they can present with would be difficulty swallowing or mm-hmm. even difficulty breathing, depending upon how large the thyroid cancer is and where it actually is uh, pressing in the neck. And I should back up a little bit. Some people mm-hmm. might not be aware of where the thyroid actually is. Good it's point. in the neck, and it, it, it's called the butterfly gland because it actually has two lobes that straddle the, the voice box, right below the voice box and across the trachea. Um, and so that explains why you would have those particular symptoms when you have advanced thyroid cancer. And how many people are affected every year? How many people are diagnosed every year approximately? Right now, it's about 60,000 people are diagnosed every year. Uh, to put it in perspective, it's the eighth most common cancer now in the United States. And as of 2012, there were 600,000 uh, cancer center survivors that were still uh, in the United States. And you talked, Dr. Bodenner, about about um, possibility of people getting diagnosed with advanced uh, uh, cancer. But um, in general, what is the prognosis uh, of, you know, of a thyroid cancer uh, diagnosis, and is it, you know, is it manageable, treatable, or is it a, is it a fatal diagnosis? Yeah, um, most thyroid cancer patients uh, live a long life and almost a ninety-eight percent survival rate in the ages between twenty and forty-five. Thyroid cancer is a little bizarre, though, because in children that are diagnosed with thyroid cancer, they have a very high incidence of metastases at the time of diagnosis. Almost 40 to 50% of them are going to have thyroid cancer in their lungs or in their brain or in their bones. But surprisingly, the mortality rate for even uh, thyroid cancer patients' children is still remarkably good. Their, their overall survival is 90%, even though they have very large amounts of tumor burden and they tend to relapse or recur probably 50% of the time. And then you move into the age group from 20 to 45, and this is where you hear all the time that thyroid cancer is the best cancer to have because mm. if you're diagnosed in that age category, your 30-year survival is 98%. It's, it's just very uncommon for someone to die from thyroid cancer, uh, to be honest. And mm-hmm. then you get in the 45 and up age category, and if you're diagnosed with thyroid cancer at about the age of 65 or 70, the overall mortality rate, five-year mortality, is about 40%. It's just as bad as lung cancer. 
so you see that there's this big dichotomy that no one really understands where 20 to 45, it's very easy to treat and easy to monitor, but in, in the elderly, it can be a, a fairly vicious tumor. So let me, so I, I've read that it is um, sometimes difficult to make a definitive diagnosis if thyroid cancer is suspected. Um, is that correct, Dr. Bowden, or why is that? Yeah, the, the reason is that the definitive diagnostic uh, move is a fine needle aspiration where you, you take a very thin, skinny needle and you insert it into a nodule, um, under, usually under ultrasound guidance. And then you send that to the pathologist and they look at it under the microscope. And there are different categories of fine needle aspiration results. It can either be completely benign or completely malignant. And for those two, the diagnostic accuracy is very high, like 96%. There's still a small percentage of, of missing the tumor, if you will, when you do the biopsy. But then there's several intermediate or indeterminate types of nodules. And what I mean by that is you, even though you're in the nodule and you, you, you know you've got the right tissue, that the pathologist says they call it a, a follicular neoplasm. And what I mean by that, it's a fancy term, but all it means is that that particular kind of biopsy cannot be diagnosed cancer or benign by the uh, pathologist. No matter how many times you do the biopsy, mm-hmm. it's always going to come back as this one particular form called follicular neoplasm. Mm-hmm. And up until a few years ago, the only way to get a diagnosis was to send them to surgery and have that the mm-hmm. half of the thyroid removed that contained the nodule in question. And this occurs probably 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. And if you do have a follicular neoplasm, the cancer rate is 20 to 25%. So to put it in perspective, we were kind of stuck until recently with a, a biopsy that really couldn't give us an answer. And the only way to get an answer was to go to surgery. And although 75 to 80% are still going to be benign, the 20 to 25% malignancy rate is just too high to just sit there and say, okay, we'll watch mm. it. So that's why uh, patients would go to surgery. And that's why it's, it's, it still remains very difficult to uh, diagnose it. And the last point to make is that that 10, 15% of all biopsies are, are quote, inadequate. In other words, you, you know where you were, you were inside the nodule, but the pathologist says, we just don't have enough cells to make a diagnosis. And then uh, you typically re-biopsy maybe even twice, but yes. uh, there's still a percentage of patients where even two or three biopsies are going to be inadequate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if that happens, the uh, uh, chance of having thyroid cancer in that particular nodule is 15%. So usually we recommend that they go to surgery as well. So you're talking about a relatively large percentage of nodules that are going to be very difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. So of course, Dr. Ferrando, we immediately think of dogs for the solution, (laughs) right? Uh, We've got a couple minutes until our first break, Dr. Ferrando, but how did we get to this idea that dogs might create a solution here? Well, it actually came up as a result. Dr. Bowden and I have been collaborating on uh, our research for many years now, and I was actually doing search and rescue with a couple of my dogs, and I would continue to update him on how amazing they were in terms of uh, what they could find, how they could find it, et cetera. And he kept bringing up this common theme that he just explained to you. It's very difficult to diagnose thyroid cancer. I wonder if the dogs can diagnose thyroid cancer. Mm. So, you know, we both just uh, took a look at each other and said, let's give it a try. Let's give it a shot because uh, I know what they can do in terms of finding human remains. I know what they can do in terms of finding lost people. I know their olfactory capability. And 
we reasoned that if we started with scent trained dogs, it would be a lot easier to, to get this project moving. And indeed, that was the, the, the occurrence, is that we had already started with dogs that were trained for scent detection of some type, and it was easy to move them to another scent. So your so uh, uh, Dr. Frando, when I, I uh, read your introduction and your bio, your work has focused mainly on preservation of skeletal muscle. Um, you know, a lot of lo- really interesting, fascinating background, but did not see a lot in the cancer space. So it was really through your own personal connection to dogs and the research that you were doing in the research community that um, that uh, sparked your interest in engaging in the study. Yeah, I think, like I said, my collaborations, my ongoing collaboration with Dr. Bodener certainly helped because he had the, you know, intestinal fortitude, if you would, to venture outside the box and give this thing a try. And once again, my my experience with the dogs in terms of search and rescue. And, and furthermore, what I have done all my career really wasn't disease-oriented. This is an opportunity, I think, to become more disease-oriented. I mean, you know, we have a... You know, sarcopenia is the loss of muscle as you get older, et cetera, but it's still not classified as, as a disease. And everybody knows somebody in their family who is affected by cancer. And so it was a great opportunity, I felt, to, to kind of move to another area in terms of disease and disease detection. Well, it's really fascinating. We're just at the top of our conversation about these dog detectives and can man's uh, best friend sniff out thyroid cancer. We've got two wonderful guests with us today, Dr. Donald Bodener and Dr. Arnie Ferrando, researchers from the University uh, of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. They're trying to ask the question, answer the question, can dogs detect uh, thyroid cancer? They're uh, engaged in a um, in a fascinating study. We wanted to get just a little bit of background about thyroid cancer, a little bit of background about some of the challenges um, in, in diagnosing and properly diagnosing um, uh, a, a person with thyroid cancer and what some of those challenges um, might be. We we're going to uh, take a quick break here. Uh, don't go away. We want to get into the details of the study. This is really fascinating, and we want to hear about some of the dogs um, who've been involved uh, uh, in this uh, heroic research. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, 
I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities, Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Amgen Oncology and Lilly Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're learning about some amazing research being conducted at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. They're investigating dog's ability to detect and diagnose thyroid cancer because current diagnostic tests have a difficult time differentiating cancerous and non-cancerous lumps. With us today, our lead investigator, Dr. Arnie Ferrando, who is a professor in the Department of Geriatrics at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and Dr. Donald Bodenner, Director of the Thyroid Center and Chief of Endocrine Oncology. Uh, Doctors uh, Bodenner and Ferrando recently presented findings from their second study at the Endocrine Society's Endo 2015 conference. Uh, Dr. Ferrando, what is your overall goal in studying dogs' ability to sniff out cancer, and what was the specific goal of your first study? Can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, well, let me start with the second question. The specific goal of the first study was to simply see, uh, as you know from the literature, other people have used dogs to detect various forms of cancer, but nobody's done it with thyroid cancer, first of all. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, I I think that we had to, as I mentioned to you, you, utilize these scent-trained dogs and see if we can quickly transition them to another scent, if you will, and to see if we can reliably detect the difference between a cancerous and non-cancerous sample uh, with the dogs. And that's what we called a reliability study, and that's what we published uh, last year in a journal called Video Endocrinology, where we showed that the dogs could reliably detect the difference between uh, urine and blood of cancerous and, uh, cancer patients and those with benign uh, uh, lesions. So uh, with that, they have a very high degree of reliability. They were like 97% in in urine and 100% in the blood in terms of their ability to detect. The the extension of this, the idea, the extension of this is, and I think now that we have the team to do it, is to really bring this past that point. Others have done these reliability studies, and they should. And I think by now everybody can accept the fact that dogs can reliably detect some form of cancer in a biological fluid. But what we wanted to do now is see if the, the dogs have the capability of becoming what we call a clinical adjunct. In other words, can they really help the physician diagnose the presence of cancer? And, and that's where we, we hope to go with the team that we formed both here and at, at Auburn University School of Vet Med. And so, literally, you mean having dogs in clinics with patients support? No, 
Yeah. I'm sorry, ma'am. I didn't mean to cut you off on that. But everybody worries about that. We don't ever foresee, like, bringing the dog into the room when you're the patient. It's mm-hmm. The whole idea of this the ra- rationale for looking at these various types of body fluids is ease of examination. So it's mm-hmm. very easy to collect a urine sample from a patient. So the doctor uh, collects a urine sample. They send it to a site. And the dogs examine and give the, the doctor the determination or examination from the dog, and that helps him or her guide their care plan with that patient. Uh, I think Dr. Bodenner will tell you a little bit more about that as we go through the conversation. Okay. So, doc, Dr. Frinda, let me ask you, how did you go about bringing together the research team for the study? And I'm, I'm going to include Frankie, your canine <laughs> team member, uh, in that question. How was Frankie selected as well as the rest of the team? Well, we've been very fortunate here, I think, uh, and, and Dr. Boner is to be commended in great part for that. Number one, obviously, they were his patients, so he was the one willing to recruit the patients from his clinic and, and discuss this with them, and that's a huge step right there. And then we have the services or the collaboration of, of the uh, ENT surgeon, uh, Dr. Brendan Stack, who was willing to take valuable OR time and give us pieces or portions of the tissue that we can use to imprint the dogs. Uh, we have, uh, like I said, now the collaborative effort with the world's expert in scent training is the Canine Performance Services uh, Sciences from uh, Auburn Vet School of Veterinary Medicine. So we've been able to formulate a team, I think, like no others have throughout the world and, and previously, and that's why I believe that we can actually uh, carefully examine this in, in terms of its efficacy as a uh, clinical adjunct. And the, the dogs were just, as I mentioned, the original hypothesis was to take an already scent trained dog and to quickly transition them. And that's where kind of Frankie and Sophie and these others came in. They were already scent trained dogs. Mm-hmm. They were already performing search and rescue operations. And so they already had the idea of a command, seek, tell me. So it, it's a lot easier when you start with that given. It's like, you know, taking the McDonald's All American basketball player and then, you know, sending the Duke to be a, a basketball player. It's a lot easier. At that point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I know, uh, Doctor Frinda, one of the concerns that I've heard is sometimes raised in discussion about dogs and detecting cancer is that the dogs are "quote unquote" inadequately blinded, meaning that they're picking up cues from their handlers. How did you guard against giving Frankie subconscious cues or otherwise influencing Frankie in the study? Yeah, that's a very that's a very good question, and you're right, the, the, especially. Dogs that know you well, because dogs dogs do nothing but study you. They notice all your little idiosyncrasies. But the way we got away from that is we are blinded. So whoever was handling the dog is totally blinded to the sample. So so uh, that's one way. The other way is we actually double blinded the second study we're going to talk to you about. In other words, the experimenter and the handler, neither one knew what the samples were because we waited till we got final pathology and married up the dog's examination with final pathology. So nobody in that room other than a dog really knew what the samples were. And okay. so that's the easiest way of doing that. And we have other uh, more traditional methods where we release the dog and the dog examines the samples and tells us where the sample is and, and all we do is record what he says. So the idea really is to take the handler out of it as much as you can and rely on the dog's examination. I see, I see. Uh, and Dr. Bodenner, in reading about various dog-related studies underway, I've noticed that different studies were using different types of samples. Some use blood, some use urine, tissue, even breath. Um, Dr. Bodenner, can you explain to us the pros and cons of different types, different samples, and why you chose urine for this study? Well, um, 
Urine we chose mainly because it's so easy to collect. You know, blood is somewhat problematic, especially if you're reaching out to underserved areas, you know, collecting it, spinning it uh, down, and then freezing it. But urine could be pretty universally packaged and sent back to a, a testing site. So that's one of the reasons. We did want to at least look at blood um, and saliva is what we actually started out with as well. Uh, and Dr. Ferrano can talk a little bit about the, the sensitivity and specificity with blood versus urine, which is actually more accurate. Um, but like I said, we haven't really decided how we're going to actually collect samples and send them. But urine is probably the best candidate uh, just because of its ease of use. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And, and Dr. Bodener, what were, when you were thinking about the study or de- designing the study, what were the sort of minimum thresholds you thought were necessary in order for the data to be relevant or deserving of further investigation? Did it have to, did the dogs have to be right in a certain percentage of the time? Did it, did you look at how it compared to other diagnostic tests? How did you guys think about that? Well, right now, if you, if you rewind a little bit to uh, when I was discussing the difficulty in diagnosing thyroid cancer from a nodule, Mm -hmm. that up until a few years ago, we had to send them all to surgery. And now over the past three, four, five years, there's been an evolving science, if you will, where using uh, chemical means, they can examine a fine needle aspiration biopsy and tell you with some accuracy whether or not it's benign or malignant. So in other words, right now for some patients that are, quote, indeterminate, that are follicular neoplasms, that I send the fine needle aspiration out to a company that then runs this gene classifier, which is a molecular biology test, essentially, and then they come back and they they tell me the percentage of of whether or not it's benign or malignant. The problem is that they've been having some difficulty with the test and that the best that they've been able to do is right around 85% uh, accuracy. So in other words, you could still be wrong 15% of the time when you send your sample off when it's an indeterminate biopsy. So if we could get close to 85%, we'd be right there with uh, the best that science has to offer right now. Okay. Okay. And so, Dr. Ferrando, as we get up to our next break here, boil it down for us. What were the results of the first study? What did you learn? Well, the first study, the reliability study, uh, we learned that, number one, it's very easy to imprint the dogs on the scent, as we had uh, seen previously. It's very easy for them to discriminate uh, between the scents, between a cancer sample and a non-cancer sample, and they were very accurate in their uh, detection as such. So, in the urine samples, they were uh, 97% uh, accurate, and in the blood samples, they were uh, literally 100% accurate uh, in, in terms of their reliably detection of, uh, reliable detection of cancers versus benign. Keep in mind, it, it was just as important as Dr. Bodener mentioned earlier. It's just as important to know whether it's cancerous and also just as important to know whether it's not cancerous because uh, the treatment accordingly. Right now, as he mentioned to you earlier, if you're uncertain, mm-hmm. you have to go to surgery and, and get the gland taken out. And, and he'll, he'll probably mention to you that a lot of those folks really didn't need that surgery. So, mm-hmm. uh, so say so say the numbers again, Dr. Frinda, what you learned from the first study. Just say the percentages again. Okay, so they were they were ninety seven percent accurate, both both in terms of specificity and sensitivity. So sensitivity was the ability to detect a true positive, as they say, or a true cancer sample, and specificity is a true negative. In other words, they, do, they don't alert on a benign or they know the difference between a, a hot and a cold sample. And so 
both of those were 97% in urine and they were 100% in blood. And, how, and, and 97%, I mean, that's a huge number. How does it compare to the other tools that are out there? Well, I'm going to let Dr. Bodander mention that or discuss that with you. Yeah, we just got a quick minute until the break, so I just uh, that would be great, Dr. Bodander. Yeah, sure. Like I said, that uh, the fine needle aspiration, which is a gold standard for making a diagnosis, if if it's not the follicular neoplasm, the the uh, fine needle aspiration it has a sensitivity and specificity of right around 96 to 97 percent. Mm-hmm. So, but I got to stress that's on a cancer that they can look at under the microscope and tell you mm-hmm. that it's a cancer. There mm-hmm. are, are many times when pathologists just can't do that. Got it. Got it. So, pretty darn good. 97 percent accuracy on this reliability study. Um, Pretty uh, pretty exciting stuff here. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, don't go away. We've got a lot more to talk about, additional research sort of part two uh, of this conversation, um, really talking about these wonderful dog detectives and, and the question about can man's best friend uh, sniff out thyroid cancer. We've got two great guests with us today. We're really drilling down uh, on some of the details of this uh, amazing research. We've got a lot more to talk about. Don't go away. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Onyx Pharmaceuticals and Amgen subsidiary in Bristol-Myers Squibb. 
I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking with Dr. Donald Bodenner and Dr. Arnie Ferrando about research they're conducting about dogs' ability uh, to detect thyroid cancer. Dr. Ferrando is a professor in the Department of Geriatrics at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Dr. Ferrando's work has focused on the preservation of skeletal muscle, in particular the use of pharmacological and nutritional interventions to improve muscle loss. Dr. Bodenner is director of the Thyroid Center and chief of endocrine oncology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He is also an associate professor in the Department of Geriatrics. Dr. Bodenner is a member of the Endocrine Society, the American Federation of Clinical Research, and the American College uh, of Physicians. Dr. Bodenner, I just want to I want to talk about, you know, we're talking about a lot of science here, and we're trying to keep it down to a very understandable level. I'm not a scientist. A lot of our listeners are not. But, you know, let, let's, let's talk about some maybe some of the practical scenarios where this, you know, where this kind of science, using these dogs to detect cancer, can avoid unnecessary procedures, invasive procedures. Can we get to a point where we have enough science where it, it might give people some peace of mind to avoid some of those procedures, which, which we know maybe statistically are not necessary. Yeah, like I uh, outlined in a previous segment, is that there are thyroid nodules that just can't be diagnosed by a fine needle aspiration, or, or it's, it's very difficult to do so. And that's where the dogs would be really helpful in these so-called indeterminate thyroid nodules. And if they could... Uh, accurately give us an answer, then that would get rid of a a large number of surgeries. But I think really important in the thyroid field is the concept of a multinodular goiter. Goiter just means an enlarged thyroid, and in a multinodular goiter, you can have upwards of 10, 20 thyroid nodules, and if I were to biopsy every one, I'd be there all morning. They would look like a pincushion, and it's just impractical. And so I have to tell patients that statistically, Ma'am, you have a 5% chance of having a cancer in one of those nodules. And that's been, that number's been validated over and over again. Uh, but I do have to inform them. And then if they are very nervous, very anxious about the fact that they still have a 5% chance of, of cancer and they desire surgery, we don't deny them that. So, uh, but the problem is that we do that knowing that 95% of all surgeries on a multinodular recorder like that are unnecessary. Mm. And so this is a huge hole in, in our standard of care is yeah. to do surgeries when you, when you know essentially that, that almost all of them are going to be unnecessary. Well, um, yeah, you're really talking about a, another layer of backup to really give patients some peace of mind in this, uh, you know, in this decision-making, right? Exactly, and so that's why I, I'm so excited about the dogs because in that in that scenario where mm-hmm. I feel I actually feel guilty in a way sending them to surgery because I know that 95% are going to be unnecessary. Mm-hmm. If the dog could come come in and say that you have a 90% chance that it's benign, then I'd feel very comfortable just saying, "Well, you come back and we'll do ultrasounds every six months mm-hmm. to a year initially, and we can just watch it." And and would retest the samples with the dogs, you know, just to make sure that there hasn't been some mistake. Well, I think like we were saying before, you know, look, we're we're relying on dogs for some very important solutions in our society, right? To keep us safe, to detect drugs and detect bombs, and to to find folks who are lost. I mean, I imagine they're maybe using them, you know, using dogs in Nepal right now in in, uh, in Nepal to find folks who were, you know, who who maybe are still yeah. missing. You know, in that earthquake, so we're using these dogs for such important solutions. So why not, um, you know, why not for the detection of cancer? I mean, I want to share 
some interesting facts our production team dug up. Man and dog really have been best friends for thousands and thousands of years. Um, you know, one theory about the origin of this friendship is that groups of hunters engaged in early, uh, you know, engaged early sort of proto-dogs as helpers. Um, and, you know, it looks like, like uh, we've been friends and colleagues for a long time. Um, and however things began, there seems to have always been really a special bond between us and our dogs. I know archaeologists found a burial site in Israel containing the 12,000-year-old remains of an elderly man cradling a puppy. I mean, you know, pretty cool. And, and uh, again, a, a very deep and long, uh, a long connection. Um, Dr. Bodenner, when you embarked on this process, were you looking for a particular breed of dog or one with a specific type of background? Did you have an ideal dog, or do we know if some dogs are better at this than others? Well, I think I'm going to turn that question over to Dr. Ferrando because he knows a lot more about the lineage and, and, and what dogs are best. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer your question, uh, I don't know if I can do that entirely. We've tended to default to the snout dogs, we call it, the dogs you would think of as you know, the hunters, like like exactly what you said, the ones we use in search and rescue bond detection, the the shepherd mixes, the lab mixes, things of that nature. And if you look at the uh, uh, specific purpose dog that Auburn CPS breeds, it's if you saw it, it looks like a lab, to be honest with you, some sort of mm-hmm. lab mix. So basically dogs uh, predispose, number one, to scent detection. But the other important thing is the dog has to have a high drive uh, a hunt drive, if you will, to, to find. And if, if, if we've done this with our other dogs too. You can take a very smart dog. In fact, I've done it with a couple of them. They imprint quickly, et cetera. But if they don't have the drive to work for you, you're not going to get anywhere with them. So you really need a combination of both. You need you need a dog that is probably genetically predisposed to scent detection in some regard, and you got to have a dog that's motivated to do so. So tell us about Frankie who was the dog in the study. Can you break down for us the training process that Frankie went through, and, and, and how did you know he was ready? Well, uh, pretty much the same as, uh, you know, any other scent detection is you imprint the dog on the scent, uh, and in this regard, we did it with the tissue that I was describing to you we got from surgery from Dr. Stack. So we actually took the verified disease tissue, and we presented it to the dog so that he knows the scents associated with that disease. And you pair that with some, some word or command or whatever it is. It's just a conditioning technique. And then you reward him for identifying that. Now, Frankie is a very uh, high-drive, food-driven dog, and so he will do pretty much anything for food. And so <laughs> once he understood that game, which took him about two iterations to understand it, it's like, here's the smell, here's what I call it. Oh, by the way, when you find it, you get a reward. Everything kind of fell into place right there. And that's, that's pretty much what, what is done across the board. For, you know, we use uh, food as reward, uh, but others, uh, like Auburn, for example, uses ball reward drives. It's just positive reinforcement, however you look at it. So, Dr. Ferrando, can you tell us about the second study? How was it designed? What was the goal of the second phase? Yeah, the the second study was getting really to what Dr. Bodenner was after. Can you help me diagnose cancer in these patients? And so what we did is when the patients first presented to Dr. Bodenner's clinic, the first time he saw them, we got blood and urine samples from the patients. And then, as I mentioned to you earlier, we presented them to the dog in double-blind fashion. So, in other words, we had no idea what these patients were. Uh, 
whether they had cancer or, or not. And we presented the samples to the dog and recorded the dog's answers. And then after the course of clinical care was complete, we did not change clinical care. Dr. Bodner did not change his clinical care plan with these mm-hmm. patients. But mm-hmm. after the clinical care was complete, we married up the final pathology, in other words, what that tissue actually was with the dog's answer. And we found that the, the data we presented in, in uh, San Diego, we found that the dog was 80, 80, about 88% accurate, and since then the accuracy has increased slightly uh, to, to, to about 92%. So, yes, Dr. Bodenner, we've got... Dr. Bodonna, we've got two or three minutes until our break here, but you're the doctor. I'm the patient. You want me to participate in this study. Go ahead. Tell me how you do that. Well, first, I just ask, you know, uh, whether or not, well, I tell them that we've been having remarkable luck in training dogs to detect thyroid cancer in urine and blood. And usually they just, their eyes light up, especially dog owners, they, their eyes light up and they say, oh, that is the neatest thing I've heard in a long time. So, I have never been turned down when I asked the, the patients to participate. And in ne- fact, never, you've never been turned down by one patient? By one patient, no. And, wow. and we're, I don't know what we, we're up in the 60s or 100. I don't know how many patients that we have right now. But no, no one has turned me down. Even, even uh, patients that say, well, I don't really like dogs, but, you know, uh, this sounds like a good thing. So that's, that's been um, uh, very gratifying. Um, I do want to backtrack just for a second because mm-hmm. I'm always asked, well, in the first study, it was, it was 98, 98%, 98% at 100%, but in the second study, it's only 88%. Mm-hmm. It's important to make the difference between the, the patients that participated in the first study. We knew they still had cancer, but they didn't have a thyroid. So in other words, they'd already gone through the process and they still had residual cancer that I knew was there. So that's mm-hmm. about as pure a background. That's why we did it, because we wanted to, to pretty much load the dice to see what the mm-hmm. very best we could do. But what Dr. Ferrando is talking about now is patients that still have their thyroid in. So you, you can see where, where that would be probably the worst case scenario, where you've got mm-hmm. the entire gland that's made up really of the same tissue as cancer, but it's still present and potentially could confuse things. So that's why there, there was a, a, I thought there might even be more of a drop-off in our diagnostic accuracy once you did it in real patients got it. as compared to uh, uh, metastatic thyroid cancer patients initially. Did you get a lot of uh, stories, Dr. Bodiner, along the way about people and their dogs? Oh yeah, and, and <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of the patients they had interesting stories where they were convinced that their dog knew that they had thyroid cancer beforehand because they'd sniff their neck, and um, there were a lot of those kinds of stories, which are the anecdotes that really got this whole thing going. Yeah, we certainly heard um, about a lot of those anecdotes around, frankly, you know, around the world over the years about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a dog sniffing at someone's ear and they, it was determined they had brain cancer or scratching at their chest and it was determined that they had breast cancer. And so, uh, you know, it really is fascinating. And it's, um, it, you know, we're just so excited to see those anecdotes move into real, um, you know, r- real, you know, peer-reviewed studies to real science uh, so that we can learn how to really use and, and, um, and activate this method, as you say, as a sort of an extra layer of tool, and and again, I mean, the idea that we could use uh, use this to avoid studies, to avoid surgery, to give patients a whole other layer of uh, of uh, peace of mind, I think, is really really powerful. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about dog detectives today, um, and the question: Can man's uh, best friend sniff out thyroid cancer? We're looking at two really. 
fascinating studies by two wonderful researchers and uh, and a dog named Frankie. And uh, we're learning a lot about uh, about the background, about the science, how the studies were designed, and really what the reaction was uh, by the patients who were in the study. We've got more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We'll be right back. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you in part by Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today we're talking about dogs' ability to detect cancer, and if indeed they can, uh, how can we um, take advantage of that and exploit that uh, ability to the benefits of patients and families? We're truly fortunate to have with us today two doctors researching just that question as it relates to thyroid cancer, Dr. Donald Bodiner and Dr. Arnie Ferrando, researchers from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Thyroid cancer is the fastest growing cancer in the U.S. with 62,450 newly diagnosed cases every year and nearly 2,000 uh, deaths every year. Um, so, Dr. Ferrando, we started to... Uh, talk about um, the results of the second study, for, but uh, felt a little rushed for those just joining us. Can you, again, just summarize the results of the second uh, study and how did our friend Frankie performed, uh, perform compared to our current diagnostic methods? 
The, the second study was designed, as uh, Dr. Bodenner intended from the beginning, is to see if the docs could help us actually improve his diagnoses of cancer. So we actually had the dog separately diagnose cancer. So we took the patients who first presented to Dr. Bodenner's clinic. We took their urine samples, and we also got blood samples, which we haven't. We just started to investigate. But we presented the urine samples to the dog, uh, got his examination, and then married up his examination or answer, if you will, uh, to the uh, final pathology that comes after surgery. We, we've done a lot more than we actually have the final pathology on. We've only reported, I think, to this point, 36 or so, but we, we've actually investigated or actually had them examine over 50 samples. So we're still waiting on the results to come out. But the, the bottom line was we reported at the Endocrine Society we had an accuracy of about 88%. It's since gone up to about 91% uh, of uh, you know, in terms of his responses being accurate. In other words, 91% of the time he told you whether you did or did not have cancer. Mm -hmm. I want to just take a quick minute to tackle some of the controversy surrounding studies investigating dogs' ability to detect cancer. I mean, critics have argued that working with actual dogs in a clinical setting is not viable. You said earlier that's really not what we're talking about. Um, I know in response to your presentation at the Endocrine Society, uh, Cancer Research UK said using dogs would be impractical but discovering the chemicals that dogs can smell could lead to new um, tests. So, Dr. Bodiner, I, I, you know, I can certainly understand some of the concerns, but we have dogs everywhere. We've got, you know, dogs at airports. We've got, uh, you know, detecting materials. I was um, uh, at the Amtrak uh, train station this week, and I had there were dogs walking around and a dog, you know, walking right past me and sniffing bags. Is it really that inconceivable that we could potentially at some point have them in hospitals? Yes, and once again, we wouldn't have the dogs in the hospital, but the whole idea is, is whether dogs could really help out in the care of cancer patients, and I think that that is, is absolutely possible, if not highly probable. And one of the reasons that I, I think that's, that's true is that uh, from this study where we actually used the dogs in a clinical setting, we're, we're very close to the gold standard on mm-hmm. on biopsy. Um, so if we could get even that close, I think that it would be very helpful, especially in uh, like low income or yeah. third world countries or some place where they can't go to clinic and get a, a fine needle aspiration biopsy under ultrasound. If they could just supply urine and have that shipped and then get an answer that way, I think that would be a, a tremendous improvement in uh, affordable and approachable care to these underserved people. Yeah, it seems uh, seems like a logical solution, especially where the technology that we're fortunate enough to have here in the U.S., you know, just does not exist. I mean, I was doing some work with a psychologist in the Sudan, and she said basically, the, you know, the only tool they had for cancer treatment was a 25-year-old radiation machine. That was it. Mm-hmm. That's why she was, you know, tr- you know, essentially counseling patients and providing support was the gold standard in care because the science and the technology just did not exist. So it does seem interesting to think about this as a solution, um, you know, in um, uh, in the developing world. Uh, Dr. Frando has moved towards the end of the show. What What is the next uh, phase of the investigation and what do you hope to accomplish in the months and years to come? 
Well, the next phase of this, uh, assuming we have uh, adequate funding to do so, is that we have uh, collaborated or partnered with Auburn Canine Performance Sciences. And so we are just at the beginning of that collaboration where we're actually sending them patient samples and they're going to derive a, a we're going to derive what we call a more robust data set. Instead of just using one or two dogs, we're going to, we're going to get a lot more dogs involved in this, a lot more samples examined, and a very robust data set that will help us push this thing along to, to being a clinical adjunct. Because the scientific and medical community only understands data, and so that's really where okay. I think we've separated ourselves from everybody else instead of just staying stay there with a 50 sample examination or 100 mm -hmm. sample examination. We're hoping to look at, you know, hundreds and, and, and get the uh, idea of that. And the other thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at the difference between what we call general source dogs, which we've been using, basically rescues, mm -hmm. home dogs, you know, re repurposed scent detection dogs, etc., versus what Auburn has is a, a specific breed dog or a purpose-bred dog. They have bred generational dogs that are predisposed towards scent detection that they've used for drug and, and uh, explosive detection. So we're going to compare basically the return on investment, if you will, the time mm -hmm. and cost that it takes us to develop dogs from each source. Is the government involved at all? Is there any government or NCI funding involved in your work so far? Not at this point. I, we're hoping that once again we get a more robust data set. I think we can go after the larger pots of funding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Bodenner, any uh, uh, closing remarks that you want to share about the future of the research as we come to a close here? Well, uh, I, we haven't mentioned that this is really Thyroid is really a pilot study. You know, mm -hmm. that we're mm -hmm. this, looking at thyroid cancer is mostly a proof of principle because there are several other cancers such as ovarian and pancreatic that, that are really lethal. And that, that thyroid cancer is kind of tough to diagnose, but those cancers are literally impossible. You know, they, they usually present when they have stage 4 disease, yes. and by that time, cure is, is really tough. So in high-risk individuals, if we could have a screening system, mm -hmm. even if it was 85% accurate mm -hmm. in screening, I think that would be a huge boon to uh, medicine. To, to a huge advance, yeah, yeah. And to really better understand what it is these dogs are smelling. It's just so, you know, it's just, uh, I, I know, still one of, the, uh, one of the questions that's out there. Um, well, Mark Twain once said that it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the si size of the fight in the in dog. The dog. Right. <laughs> and what we, from what we've heard today, uh, our four-legged friends are certainly standing at our side in the fight to detect cancers and absolutely. save lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have to see where the data takes us, but it's truly an exciting line of research, and uh, I'm grateful that we've been able to explore it a bit with such knowledgeable uh, and experienced scientists, Dr. Bodenner, Dr. Ferrando. I want to thank you for coming on the show today and telling us about the incredible work uh, that you're doing. I certainly hope you'll come back and uh, continue to share your discoveries um, with us because I think it's a fascinating conversation. I want to, uh, you know, invite folks to keep up with your work by visiting the university's website, uamshealth.com slash cancer. Uh, it's been my uh, pleasure to have our listeners join today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephone support services for people with cancer, with thyroid cancer, and, and uh, frankly, any uh, kind of cancer, um, and also for the loved ones and family members. Uh, of people with cancer. We provide support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, uh, free of charge. In fact, in the past year, we've provided over 
$40 million in free services to patients and families. For more information about our programs, visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management